Dennis Collins. Present. Lorraine Coates. Present. Noel Cromwell. Present. Thomas Dalton. On any given school day, about one out of every ten children is absent. Some may be just sick, but others are on the mitch. What do they do, and where do they go? Well, they used to go out of the shopping centre. You used to go up a nudist tree. They used to go up there, a real high tree, and used to leave me back up there. Probably walk around down into the village sometimes and meet a few friends that were meeting and I'd go into town with them. Then sometimes I'd be late home and I'd tell my mother that I was playing a football match for the school. We used to go up to the wee fields every day, you know, and we chased the mouses around the field. And then after that we'd come down for a while, you know, we'd have a couple of pence in our pocket and we'd buy a few sweets, then we'd go home. Then we'd come straight home. This inspector would be looking for us all that day, you know. Well, I used to like horses an awful lot, and I got too used to them. So I used to help a man, you know. And he, he used to ask me to get the horse for him every morning. He used to like coming up on the horse's back. Then that gave me the hobby to start mitching. You know, I might go off for a while sometimes. Then I might go with your man on the horse wagon. Then I'd probably drop up the wee fields if it's a nice day like this. Another time I might go into town, you know, to pass the time into all broken houses and all that and play. Went around town up the Ivy Market, the Funlands, that's in the bill, maybe up the Phoenix Park, and on the back of Lurie's. Just to forge, you know, just to write it myself, bring it up and hand it into him. Used to say that I was sick or something, you know. I used to like dogs and used to go up the canal with them and all. Been there for the swim and used to go robbing them. Now we have stray dogs. Used to go, used to love dogs, you know. Used to been out the canal, follow them in, let them swim, and I go off dust and then probably rob a cake or something. Yeah, bam, bottle of milk from my door or something. Just hang about all day then. They were lifting things because the police brought him home twice here to me that he was taking milk from the shops and going down to purchase houses and selling it and getting into all sorts of trouble. They were at my door night and morning, you know, that's over them. We see around the old ditches searching for old bicycle frames and making up bikes and riding on the backs of horses, gypsies' horses out in the fields, bringing home old rubbish, junk. And then, of course, uh, they were anywhere that find anything like sweets in a factory or anything like that, they were in trying to steal some. Well, of course, that's natural every bias. Like, years ago, it was raiding an orchard if they were on the mitch. Well, I don't mind staying at home and doing things, you know, but, like, the one time you'd like to be in school as well, because you can't... You can't turn around and tell the girls now when you see them in the street if you're going for the messages. Like, they turn around and say, you weren't in school today. And they go up and tell the teacher that you were out playing. And you do be on going for the messages, you know. Then you get kavout and the teacher doesn't believe you then. Well, I wash up and I get the baby ready. Get the two children ready for school. And, uh, you know, I do the cooking in that. Get the messages. That's what I do at home then. My son was sent to school on... on one Monday morning, and my husband's cousin uh, stopped us and asked us, 
was he in school? And we said yes, and she said, well, he's not because he's in the shopping centre. And we went, my husband and I got into the car and we went out looking and we tried all the pool halls, six in all. And my husband went in, I didn't. And in five of the pool halls, there were a lot of young school-going children. They were there mitching because it was during the school hours. And all but one of them, there were a lot of children there. And the one that, there were no children there, only adults. There was a fee on the door of a pound. You had to put down a pound fee before you would be allowed in. And uh, I honestly think that since these new pool halls have opened up, like the shopping centres, but they're a necessity, they're an escape for these children that are mitching, for my son anyway. And I think that um, there should there should be an age limit on the pool halls for these young children. They shouldn't be allowed into them. Well, I either go into town and have a few bob, go into town and buy things in town, or else, if there's a few of us, we go up to the railway and sit in the carriage there and play cards there and listen to tape recorders up there all day. There's a fellow in our class and he's an expert writer, you know, and uh, he does all the notes for me. So since from the first time I met till now, he's always been writing notes, acting as my pardon signature, you know, so I haven't been found out as yet. So it's bookies, pool halls, shopping centres and dossing around. Girls are more likely to be kept at home to help or do the messages. When you ask why they don't go to school, the replies are equally varied. And there was fellas there threatening me for money and all. And um, that's how I went down the Mitch from school. They always say, if you don't bring back money after dinner, a whole load of us will hop on you on the way home. It was the many who went in the morning had to do early. Up to an early dinner hour. Then you get your lunch. Then you do English and all. And the master, if you didn't, if you turned around and talked for a minute or something, come up and he'd hit you, he would. And just talking for about a minute. You're messing with the brothers, you know. You're bold. Get down the back, you know. Don't do anything. You know, you don't learn your thoughts. You know, if you do anything wrong with anybody else, you know, the brothers, you know. Do something wrong. Just tell it to you on the back, they don't want that and got to do with you, know. So I got fed up with it, so I started mitching. I wasn't more going to school. You know, just nothing got to do with it. They just don't want you, they don't want you, but then I said, I keep getting put down the back, so I said to myself, if I'm going to keep getting put down the back, then I don't, I go. I won't go to school. So I didn't go to school. It's a big change when you go from uh, a primary school, you know, to another school, up to a uh, secondary school. You know, it's much different, much more homework and that. You know, an awful lot more to do. And uh, well, I see my friends, you know, messing around the streets, so I just went with them, really. So uh, I just went out one day and I was coming back from the lunch. There was the boys sitting up the top of the road and uh, they were sitting around with football there, picking teams and that. They come out to me and he says, uh, why don't you stay off for the afternoon and have a good soccer match, having to be even and all. And so I says, all right, then I stay off. And uh, I stayed off. We had a good soccer match. And the next morning I woke up, my mother called me and gave me lunch and all. I was walking up the road and there was my mate and uh, 
His mother and father were out, and he'd have the house to himself alone, and he'd, uh, uh, he just asked me, come on, we go in. And he says, yeah, I don't want to go anyway. So I went in, and I went from that, and it got worse and worse, you know, from days to weeks, weeks to months. So I just kept it up, really. It was a bit hard in school. Me, uh, just the change from primary. I mean, it was easy in primary. I was pretty smart then, you know. Was, uh, I could do all the sums there and that, but when you get into secondary school, you realise you're not so good then. Well, I Mitch because I don't like school for a start. That's the main reason. Um, second reason is because of the teachers, you know, they're always getting on to me because there's no exercise done and because, you know, just felt the hell out of you around the place, you know. That was scared of the teachers, really, you know, going back to them and getting a kick in the ears, clout around the ear, and, you know, that sort of way. That's about mainly why. Basically, I don't really like school, certain subjects. It's only certain days that I meet, you know. It's not all days, mainly only on Tuesdays and Thursdays I meet because there's certain teachers that I dislike and I wouldn't go in for them, you know. I wouldn't go in for them subjects. And I just didn't like school at all. Then when I was in tech and all, I hadn't got my boots, so in the minute late, they started sending me home. So and I was in a few fights with the masters in there and they threw me out of school altogether. Wouldn't, they never took me back after that. I was thrown out when I was 14. Never went to school after that. In 1972, the school leaving age in this country was raised to 15. This creates a more difficult situation for some parents. In some cases, they don't know their children are mitching. In others, they know but feel helpless to do anything about it. Sometimes, of course, they feel they need to keep a child at home. Well, the reason why I'm bad and help myself and I've no one to do anything for me. I was put in for, for a home help, which I didn't get. There's the time I've got to keep my daughter home to do it until I get someone to do it. So there's nothing more I can do. I've got to keep her home. How do you feel about keeping her home? I don't like a one bit. It just has to be. And how does she feel about staying home? Well, she's going to be in school herself too. Well, the first thing we didn't know to omit it for a while, until the missus was going into town one day and she saw them walking down the village with their pals. So uh, she told me when they come home, naturally, we gave them a bit of a hiding. Because in my days, when I was going to school, midgen was a very serious thing. And a boy would be spoken about very much. It was looked on as more of a crime than anything else. But apparently it's got out of hand an awful lot here in the city of Dublin at the present time. And there are various reasons for it. What do you think the reasons are? Well, of course, some boys are influenced by their pals. I could say that that was part of uh, John's trouble and Anthony's. But on the other hand, when this got out of hand and I began to ask them why they were mitching, what was the cause of it? Was the master slapping them and beating them? They said no. It really wasn't that. And they didn't seem to be learning anything of any value in the school. 
I went over to the school a few times to fi- try and find out what conditions were and what it was like. I found a class very big, around 40 boys. Now I know it's hard to look after 40 boys. It's bad enough to look after three and four children in a home, but I understand the master's job. But John told me he was down the back of the class and was only given an odd sum to do, which was simple. He wasn't getting anywhere. Did you enjoy school? Looking back on it now, I did. But I had some good pals going to school, and except he used to pick on me a few times over these uh, subjects, especially Newton's laws. Did you ever mitch? I never mitched one day in my life. And there were very, very few boys mitched. And yet I saw them, pals and friends of mine, sitting in the cold classrooms in their bare feet. What do you think was the real reason behind your boys mitching? Was it what happened at school, do you think? I'll tell you, if they're telling me the truth, I think both of them were anxious, very anxious, to gain a little knowledge, more knowledge than what they were getting. That's my honest opinion from the questions I put to them. We're very backward in reading as regards to their ages when I was the same age. What do you think would be the reason for that? System, I think. Too big of a class for a start and system. And I think myself that they, uh, I looked, I saw the books and that, and mm-hmm. they were too, ch- they were too childish. At an age of twelve, eleven and twelve, they should have a little bit more mature reading, a little bit more advanced. Do you think there's any point in school? Naturally. But I think some, I think the authorities should definitely look into the national school system again. Should definitely that's the early national school system. I don't know whether you have to pay for secondary education now or not. I don't know, but the subjects that we were taught, as I just said, in the national school, apparently you've got to go to a higher school to learn that now, and that's after fourteen years of age. And then the boys, if they do leave the national school to join those higher-class schools, they just have the education of a child of about ten. Every case is different. The boy we hear about next was mitching constantly for about a year before his parents knew anything about it. He has not been beaten at school. In fact, the teachers have gone out of their way to be nice to him and to the family. And he seems intelligent. I have a boy, aged 11, who refuses to go to school and he's brought to school every morning at nine and left in school and when they break for their midday break at 11, at quarter to 11, he runs out of the schoolyard and he won't come in then till about half past six in the evening and when he's asked where was he in school, where was he, he just says I was on the mitch. 
and he passes no comment, he's no fear of, of telling the truth that he, he just won't go to school, although he's been brought up every morning. Does your son give any reasons why he won't go? No, he just, when you ask him why he won't go to school, he says, I don't know. And he promises to go the next day and he's brought up to school by his father the next morning, left in school, and at a quarter to eleven when they break again, he just runs out and he'll come in that night. He has no fear of, of telling us that he has been mitching from school and we can't seem to find the reason that he won't go to school, that he doesn't like school, because the brothers in the school he's in have been most helpful. The parents were visited by a school attendance officer and eventually brought before a school attendance committee. They changed the boys' school to see if that would help, but it didn't. They went on trying to get to the bottom of the problem. Well, I brought him to a doctor and the doctor in turn gave me a letter to a psychiatrist and he attended the psychiatric unit for ten months and during that period we had a social worker out to visit us in the home and she gave her findings to the psychiatrist and we were summoned to the psychiatrist and she said that he was just a child of uh, a wanderer and that she couldn't do any more than what she had done with him and they couldn't find any wrong in the environment in the home or with the parent, with us as parents that he had got it into his head that himself and she couldn't get to the bottom of it of his problem. Was the psychiatrist helpful in any way? Very helpful, very helpful with us. Mm. And we, we tried different methods of uh, tact with him. I, instead of uh, punishing him, we would speak to him. And uh, when that didn't work and he stayed out and we reported, we, we reported him to the police as being missing when he stayed out for three nights and... Uh, we were told then to try to punish him by giving him a good smacking, that maybe that's what he wanted. And he got that. And uh, that didn't work either. And then we thought then that we would, uh, when he would come in after being out all day, not going to school, and we wouldn't give him any meals and put him to bed. And that didn't work. It, nothing seems to be, anyway, he, he doesn't seem to accept any punishment. What do you think should be done about... A situation like the one you're in? Well, the situation I'm in is this. My husband is out of work at the moment, sick, and has been for the last two years. And if we had money, we could ensure that this child had an education by being able to put him into a residential school. But we haven't got the means to do this, and there's no other way that this boy is going to learn... The, the, what, the, what he should learn other than by being in school and he just won't go to school so I asked the school attendance officer if he couldn't do anything about the problem of this boy and have him put away into a residential school and I'm waiting on reply In other cases part at least of the problem may lie in family relationships My husband used to come in drunk every night he had been working for himself and he was drinking night, noon and morning. He'd be down the country and I'd see him maybe two days a week. He wasn't here to look after those children. I was looking after them myself the whole time. Did he have any control over them at all? None whatsoever. 
if I tell him that you always have to do this, he'd say it was all in my mind. That's my nerves are going and all this business, you know. Does he get any treatment? He won't take nothing. I've got tablets for him, but he won't take them. And he feels it now that he didn't check them. He's taking it out of me that I'm so I have them where they are today, you know. Would he go to groups like Alcoholic Anonymous? No. He's being appointments made from and all and wouldn't go. I don't drink myself, smoke or nothing. Don't even go out. He doesn't take me out to the door. So I put it all down to my husband. The whole lot. So how do they feel about him? They just adore him. They really adore him. And I think it's me that they should really fall back and you know, be that's looking after them so well and he wouldn't go to court with them. He'd do nothing. How did you find it in court? Very frightened. I was very, very frightened, but the school inspector was there and said nothing to be afraid of, you know. But then when it was all over, it, there was nothing to it. It's really marvellous that what they did for me. I appreciate them very much. How did you feel first about them going to St Lawrence's? Um, well, it's so near, you know, the bus, I used to go up to them nearly every second night and then the brothers told me not to be running up this. They were well looked after every Wednesday now. My little daughter goes up and stuff to them, you know. And the brother said she's not to be going up. That they get plenty up there. And but you're pleased with it? Very pleased. Very, very pleased with when they come home in uh, August. Probably have to start the same thing over again When there is continuing non-attendance at school, the parents are visited by a school attendance officer and may then be brought up before a school attendance committee. If the problem continues, the parents may have to appear in the children's court. From there, some of the boys go for assessment and may then be sent for a year to St Lawrence's Open School in Finglas. There is no really suitable place where girls may be sent. The school attendance officer has a tough job. How do they themselves see it? Brian Doolan is Chief School Attendance Officer. Non-school attendance, to my mind, is a very, very mild misdemeanour. Absolutely, there's no question in my mind about that, and there's no need to get terribly excited about it. But, as I say, in its investigation, you come across so many problems, and as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can see, there's very little anybody is doing about them, notwithstanding the myth of this new social awareness and what have you. And it's, we feel a terrible sense of frustration when we're unable to uh, do anything about uh, these particular children. What are the main problems in these cases that you would come across? Well, you can get problems, you name them, wife-beating, alcoholism, child-beating, you name them, you've read them in the paper many times, all of these problems exist there. And what worries me is that uh, while society rushes in to help the visibly maimed we had an example of that about the thalidomide children, you know. Everyone was very interested and rushed in to help in that case. But what I worry about are, are the children who suffer from what I refer to as hidden disabilities. Could you give us a case history to illustrate what you mean about school attendance officers being the first people on the scene? Well, for example, a person who's, who's um, we'll say the father is an alcoholic, uh, he gets social assistance, and point of fact, in the case, I know he gets the woman describes it as he get him he getting three blues and three greens, which amounted to thirty three pounds. 
He gives her ten pounds. He comes home drunk every night, uses a vile language. She has ten children. He breaks up the home. He urinates all over the floor. He, he, he treats her barbarously. She herself is a most inarticulate woman. The poor woman herself, and believe it or not, is a product of an industrial school herself. So help us all. And she's living under uh, those tremendous conditions. She ha now has a baby of six months old. Uh, and uh, the final indignity of a woman who's intrinsically decent, to my certain knowledge, she's now been forced to go out and beg. Now, what I want to know, Anakita, who is doing anything about it? Or what do you do about it? I mean, I, I feel myself that the influence of the parents can be for the good or for bad, but, but we come across parents where the influence is absolutely and positively destructive. And uh, th 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 I think there should be some kind of a system to deal with this thing and deal with it in a, in a quick and ready manner. Yeah. Do you think there should be something like legislation to ensure that, in certain cases, alcoholics would have to go for treatment? I do feel that, but then, of course, I, I, having said that, you know, that there's a grave danger because we have constitutional rights. Do you follow me? And uh, I wouldn't like to think that, uh, for example, the fact that a person took a few bottles of stout, that the wife was going to have him rushed off somewhere as an alcoholic. There are dangers inherent in all that sort of thing. Having said that, yes, I say offhand, I would like to see it happen, but I would imagine that under our present constitution it would be very difficult to bring legislation of that kind into being. I don't know, of course. But uh, straight answer to a straight question, yes, I think so, yeah. What, in fact, though, do you do when you come across cases like that where school attendance is really a minor problem and you're faced with a whole lot of <clears throat> very deep-rooted social inadequacy? Well, in a case like that, we feel that the, uh, or the ch needs of the child are pretty clamant. And while it would take years to perhaps cure an alcoholic or cure any of the other ills in that particular home, broken marriages and what have you, we can't uh, set about or enable, we haven't the ability to set about uh, curing these uh, ills. Uh, but as I said, the needs of the child are pressing, so do you leave the child at home to suffer all the more while you go ahead trying to cure the alcoholism, something you're not able to do anyway? So what we do in a case is that we try to deal with the child, and if we consider the child is at risk, we'll make every effort to have the child uh, taken out of that risk. And it's now, uh, I believe myself, I've said it 15 years ago, I've spoken strongly about the rights of children. I don't think they have been recognised. We've always talking about the rights of parents, particularly in Ireland. The parents here in Ireland believe, I own that child and I'll do what I like with him, you don't touch me. The rights of children have been completely forgotten. If, for example, you were to meet... Um, a man on the street beating a five-year-old child and went over to interfere, he'd tell you to go to hell because he'd say that I own that child. Uh, indeed, I think the rights of the child uh, were also forgotten in England until the advent of the, the unfortunate Maria Caldwell case. Uh, it had been preached from 1953 onwards that uh, the parents, you see, the child uh, had no rights. The parent should never, for example, be separated. The, the child should now, I should say, should never be separated from the parent. Of course, I don't uh, believe it, that. It's a dreadful step to take. But nevertheless, I feel where you have destructive parents, you see, that the child uh, would be much happier away from them, believe it or not. 
and that it's uh, an erroneous idea that in all cases the child is happier at home. Uh, that's not to say that uh, there should be uh, uh, groups going around, social workers, school attendants, or officers or anybody else breaking up homes and watching children away. No, I'm not saying that at all. I could be suspected of having said that, but I am saying that in a lot of cases, the child certainly would be better off away from the atmosphere and the environment. There are school attendance officers only in Dublin, Waterford and Cork. In the rest of the country, the Gardaí do the job, although the Conroy report recommended they be taken off the work. School attendance officers themselves feel their job should not be one of enforcement, but one of social work in the field of education, and they've made recommendations for a change in their role to the Task Force on Child Care. How do the families they deal with see them? I got a couple of visits. went to court with them. But uh, I wasn't ever asked the reason, but I was just told they were absent from school and they'd have to be punished. And that was that. But there was no discussion about the reason. Would you have liked a discussion? Certainly. A discussion is very necessary between the uh, school attendants opposite, I'd say. Yes, if he has the time. And... I suppose he could be the best man to start it off and have a meeting then with the master and the boy and the parents. And get down to brass tacks and try and start out the problem once and for all because I'll tell you one thing, what I can see, and I'm not telling tales, but all over Dublin there's a terrible lot of mitching going on. They do try, right enough, they do try to explain to you that if they don't keep going regularly, they'll be put away. But uh, they seem to think mostly that it's the parents' fault. It's not really. A, after all, if you send a boy or a couple of boys out to school in the morning with the school bags, and uh, you naturally assume that they're going to go straight to school and stay there. But you see, they're so cute that off they go, and to come back promptly at the same hour as all the rest of the boys with our school bag and come in, sit down nonchalantly and sit down, look for their dinner and after play. And you, you know nothing about this till it gets out of hand and the next thing you uh, knock on the door and it's the school inspector officer. The school attendance officers, we've had two of them because the boy has been changed from one school to the other in his own interest through the school attendance officer and we have found the two gentlemen that came to our house very helpful in, in every way toward um, trying to put us on the right road and what's best for the child and in my view they have a very hard job their job is not an easy one and the outlook that people have on them as being child snatchers and child beaters both the teachers and school attendance officers, we have found nothing wrong with them. They have been most helpful, helpful to us in helping us with our son. After several court appearances and after assessment, children may end up for a year in St Lawrence's Open School for Mild Offenders. Ironically, after their time is up, many find it hard to leave there. The very first time I was brought up to court, I was shaking. I didn't even know what it looked like even inside the court. And then they 
George to stand around us at me. Well, what did you start meeting for? And then I said, well, I didn't tell her that I was over the stage or anything. I just said I wanted to meet, you know. So, so that's, and then she said, well, I'll let you out this time, but the next time, if you're caught, I'll send you away to some place. And so, the next time we was up in court, she said the same thing. But then when I was up the third time, she sent me to Lindy's to here. You know? mm. This girl here now, I'm getting on great. The teachers and all are very good now. At least when, when we're in here, they ask you to read and read, and, you know. There's only 10 or 12 in that class now, and there's 42 in something. The last girl I was in. What sort of a difference does that make, the smaller class? Well, the smaller class, you can move around a bit, you know. And then you're asked to read and read. You know, and then... Um, you can learn all spellings and all very good, you know. Because when I was in the other class, the master, it'd go only to half them sometimes because there was 42 was an awful lot to get around there. You see? Well, believe it or not, St. Lawrence's, uh, of course... You probably would expect me to say this. St. Lawrence's are doing a tremendous amount of work. There's no doubt in the world about it. Uh, although I must say that there has been a little bit of recycling. Uh, it sounds ludicrous, but lads who have been to St. Lawrence's have come back to us again. You follow me? But that's not the fault of St. Lawrence's. St. Lawrence's are doing a tremendous amount of work. The whole idea is a wonderful one. But I will also have to say, and St. Lawrence's, the, the authorities there will uh, admit this, that uh, St. Lawrence's is not geared to cope with a certain type of boy. And if I were to tell you at the moment that there are numbers of children walking the streets of Dublin from the age of 12 to 15 years of age, who in my mind, I'm no expert now, are in urgent need of psychiatric treatment of some kind, psychiatric treatment which is not available, which are, who are in urgent need of residential care which is not available, you can see my terrible sense of frustration, you know, and throwing up my hands and saying, what the hell? The attendance officers reckon there is about a 10% rate of school absenteeism. 6% of that is easily explained, but in 4% of cases, truancy is chronic and often the first sign of families which need urgent and ongoing help. My own view is that the general public, you know, have a feeling they have this Huckleberry Finn type of image of children not going to school on the Mitch. I think that's the common expression here in Dublin, on, on the Jair, on Gore, what have you. But this, I have this image of boys rambling along the canal with jars catching pink canes, and it's perfectly true in its own way, and what's more, I see absolutely nothing wrong with it, you know. I often feel that uh, on a nice June day, a boy who goes along the canal with the jam jar, you know, has more sense than the lad who goes into school. That sounds extraordinary coming from someone in the school attendance department. My own experience from school was that a lot of the lads that I knew who went on the Mitch, went on safari up around the canal and Parnell Road, ended up at the missions as Holy Ghost Fathers. So that it didn't do them a hell of a lot of harm. Uh, so that these people don't particularly worry me. But what really worries me are the, the, in the investigation of, of school absenteeism, the appalling uh, living... Uh, conditions of some of the children and parents. I'm tired looking at it I'm blind from looking at it now and I do believe myself that the problem now has been drowned in a torrent of words 
and uh, some of the problems have been examined by experts to see with the, with the the same detail as they would uh, do an experiment on a rat in a laboratory uh, and uh, everyone is coming up with solutions as i say it's been drowned in the torrent of words i'm at it now myself again and i know no change is going to take place and then of course uh, we'll have to wait for change anyway uh, because if you ask for change now you'll be told you must await the result of the findings of the task force. So Wallace says, God spares from all harm. See, if, it's, if they really want to keep going to school, they'll go. But then if, if they get the feeling that they're not getting any further, they lose heart. At least mine did anyway. That was the sole reason. They lost heart. And I saw that... So when they saw the bit of knowledge that I have when I spoke to them about the things and I read David Copperfield to them here one Christmas and they they couldn't believe it. Now I read the story quite well to them and they were very in, in very interested in it and as a matter of fact one of them was nearly crying when I was telling about David's walk from London to Dover and he got all the blisters on his feet and had to sell his coat for 18 pence. Well, they would, they would have liked at that time to learn these things. This was their main idea. And they told me straight, we never learned anything like that over there. So then we got to talk. And when I saw those subjects they were doing, and little old sons at their age and I looked back on my own son <laughs> and how old Vam's story was at their age in the same class of a school not as good just an old cold fire in it you'd be tapping your feet together half the day to try and keep them warm and yet there was boys sitting beside you in their bare feet blistered and they knew the same as much as I did and were proud of it you been all day, Henry, me son? Where have you been all day, my beloved one? Away on the meadow, away on the meadow. Make my bed, I've a pain in me head, and I want to lie down. Where have you been all day, Henry, me son? Where have you been all day, my beloved one? Away on the meadow, away on the meadow. Make my bed, I've a pain in me head, and I want to lie down. In this second programme about absenteeism from school, we will be looking in a broader way at Mitching. It is obvious that the problem raises many questions about the way in which our educational system works and whether it is flexible enough to cope with children who have special problems. It appears that although there is about a 10% rate of truancy, 6% of this is easily explained, through sickness or taking an odd day off. But it also appears that in 4% of cases, continuing absence from school points to more serious family and social handicaps. These children come from a background which, for whatever reason, is deprived. My husband's not with me. 
He walked out when I was three months pregnant on a baby to live with an unmarried mother. A father should be dared in a home with children. When I went to a police station, he said, a father should be dared to raise their children up to a certain age. And I think it's true. I think there should be a law against it. Some of them turned around and said, don't play with her. Uh, her daddy's not even with her, you know, and all this. And then some of the daddies comes up to collect them. And uh, they say, um, oh, here's my daddy to collect me. And I just say, well, my daddy's coming in a minute, you know. They just say, oh, no, he's not. Your daddy doesn't live with you. You know, it's terrible now because everyone knows in the school. And the school I went to before Basin Lane, I didn't even know about my daddy at first. And the girl in the school, she lives upstairs. She says to me, um, I seen your daddy going down the road with um, a girl with blonde hair and the two of them had their arms around each other. And I didn't know who it was. And I said, was my mummy? She she know your mummy hasn't got blonde hair. You know, where it wasn't nice now. Marilyn Rowntree is a community social worker with the Eastern Health Board who, through her work, comes into contact with chronic absenteeism and deprivation. We come across the problem of um, school truancy um, and it, it very quickly can become a vicious circle uh, because sometimes or quite often we find that children who have um, avoided school for a period of time um, have difficulty in being accepted back into the school um, from which they have mitched or avoided in the, in the first place and other schools in the area are also very reluctant to, to take them in so that although initially the problem may come with the child avoiding school um, it very quickly becomes something that is out of his hands even if he wishes to return to school um, it is uh, quite difficult to get a school to take him back but if you're talking about the area of family deprivation um, I don't think you can see this in isolation from community deprivation um, generally speaking families who have multiple social problems are living in areas where there are a lot of environmental problems like uh, bad housing, lack of housing maintenance um, high unemployment rates and for the families themselves something that's quite important is a lack of family support services uh, lack of play facilities for the children lack of um, day nurseries, preschool facilities and um, generally sort of low income problems, the problems that are created from not having enough money to, to last the week for a family. One of the um, basic questions we must ask is you know, how is planning coordinated for community areas or geographical areas? Is there any coordination between different government department, departments? Um, not alone in the area of childcare where you have several different government departments taking responsibility for providing services with very little coordination between them, but also in the area of communities needs. Um, if we're looking at local government who are responsible for the housing, um, what are the employment agencies doing about planning and coordinating employment opportunities? Um, agencies like the IDA and the Department of Labour. Um, it seems to me that there is a great lack of communication and coordination between all of these departments who are responsible for different uh, inputs to that um, make community life either positive or negative for families living in that community. I would like to see more coordination between the agencies providing social services. 
Uh, but I would also like to see um, a much greater awareness on the part of employing agencies uh, of the need for uh, more money to be put into developing social services and support services uh, and not only employing social workers, which has been in the past seen as the easy answer. Employ a social worker and you will uh, get rid of a lot of problems in the area, which is a complete myth. Um, there are need for backup services such as basic family supports, home health services, homemaker services, uh, sufficient nursery places for children who need um, supplementary care to that which they could, the family can provide. Um, services like this are essential if the work of the social worker is going to have any long-term effect at all and is going to help families become independent rather than dependent chronically on social services and social workers. And what I think we really need to look at very honestly is if we are bringing up children in these kinds of situations, then um, the next generation are quite likely to have similar kinds of problems because if the children haven't had the kind of security and um, physical needs um, if they are not met adequately during their own childhood, how well are they going to be able to um, look after and provide for their own families and provide the emotional stability as well as the material stability that their children will need in turn? And this can be an ongoing thing from one generation to the next. The majority of people who do have sufficient resources themselves to have a happy family life and job security are certainly not aware of the degree of deprivation that um, you know percentage of our population are living in um, and we may complain about the amount of tax we pay or some discomforts we have to put up with um, but in fact I think we're going to have to really have a look at the kind of lifestyle we're leading and see you know how this will have to change if we want to be really honest about um, changing the situation for people who are living in poverty. With me in the studio to discuss these questions are John Hogan, former editor of the Education Times, Brian Doolan, who is Chief School Attendance Officer, Mark Keegan, who is Principal of Queen of Angels National School in Ballyfermot, Pat Fian, who is Principal of Pierce Vocational School in Crumlin, and Ian Hart, who is a psychologist with the Economic and Social Research Institute. Ian, you've done some research into non-attendance, what were your findings about the relationship between serious non-attendance and deprivation? Well, I suppose in the first place I'd say that the, the percentage of non-attenders who have serious social problems is more than 4%. Taking a sample of 57 Dublin school non-attenders, about 30% of the sample were chronic non-attenders, about half had parents with an alcoholic problem, and 16% got into trouble with the law for matters other than non-attendance. The factor which was most significantly associated with non-attendance was size of family. And when I divided up the group of 57 into occasional non-attenders, frequent and chronic non-attenders, the chronic non-attenders had an average of nine children in their family. The frequent non-attenders an average of 7.2 and the occasional 6.3. These averages are much higher than what you would expect for those social groups. Now, an, another factor which was of some interest uh, is this, that the kids who uh, nitched most frequently from school and who were most often absent from school were not the more aggressive sorts, not the most aggressive types. 
they were the ones who were uh, frightened, apathetic, um, and withdrawn. And their absence from school very often was a form of withdrawal behaviour, perhaps somewhat similar to what we see in industry, you know, when people just won't go into work, they feel they can't face it. So these youngsters were showing a pattern of withdrawal somewhat similar to what adults show. Now, then the question is, how can they perhaps be helped overcome this pattern of withdrawal? Because it's not just an isolated incident in their life, at least so far as the chronic um, non-attenders are concerned. It relates to the whole pattern of their life, that they have given up in a very real sense. They are apathetic. They um, cannot survive in our competitive society. And, and I think it's important to underline the fact that our society is competitive, that um, we, we prize things like social status, having a nice car, a nice house, the rest of it, um, more than we prize human fellowship. And in that kind of climate, the um, chances are that a youngster from a family where the parent is alcoholic, where there's quarrelling, where there, um, there are just a whole lot of pressures on that family from unemployment, poverty, the large number of children, the chances are that such a child won't be able to develop fully. And I think that's, that's the question which faces us, faces us. How can we make sure, first of all, that our society is the kind of society which doesn't um, put too much emphasis on competitiveness? Um, and, and secondly, how can we make sure that our educational system, at least, um, does not mirror undue competitiveness and, and, and give further substance to that value? I'd like just to comment on one point and really underline a point that Marilyn Rowntree made about non-attenders. It's something that we very often ignore when we're talking about people we regard as underprivileged or deprived or whatever. We're in, we often think in very normative terms about them. We say, you know, they have social problems, they have behavioural problems. I don't think we often enough think of the lack of money and cash that actually affects these families. You know, last, in, in one particular week of last, uh, late last year, there were 62,000 children living in families on unemployment assistance, you know, with a maximum rate of about 30 quid a week coming into a family with six kids in it. And this is real and grinding poverty. And we can't talk about parents not having a sufficiently positive attitude to education when there's only 20 or 30 pounds coming into a family of that size a week. Uh, I, I don't think we can underestimate, uh, or we can, I don't think we can stress enough the need to make sure that the physical and material level of existence of these families and nutritional levels brought up to the point where school will be a reality for them and the kind of opportunities it offers. Can I, can I just come back there on that? I think it's very important not to neglect that, but, it, but I think it's also the case that with some of these children that just the mere provision of funds is not going to solve the problem because these kids have been psychologically battered from a very early age and, and what you need there, you, you need a two-pronged approach. You need material assistance, but there must be some form of help which will help that family get back its self-respect and, and help them stand on their own feet and, and demand their rights in a more effective way. And that form of help really means um, good social work services, the function of the social worker being not to not to make the family dependent on him, but to get the family to mobilise their own resources. So you, you need... Not just financial assistance, you need that, and you also need personal assistance of some kind. 
Yeah, a point that John Horton brought up, I thoroughly agree with. I think that poverty is the major cause, at least in my school anyway. It's not the size of the school, it's really poverty. And that comes from the homes uh, where, where the father is dead, or the deserted wife, or as Ian says, where you have the alcoholic problem. And the unfortunate part is that I, as a principal teacher, I know very little about that. There's no feedback. I'm unaware of the fact very, very often. And in that case, I would uh, wish to see a trained social worker in, the, in, the, in a parish, say, like Ballyfermot, and also uh, a psychologist. As far as I know, the psychologists haven't entered this field as yet. But I would hope that uh, we could have a, a psychologist in places like Ballyfermot as soon as possible. Because uh, the psychologist, in my view, he, uh, he could coordinate the information he receives from the child, the teacher and the parent. And he could come forward with a programme that would be acceptable to uh, all three. And that, that way we could help these families. And, and these uh, people are crying out for help. And there's very little help we can give them. Yeah, I, I would like also to comment on that there because I've always made a statement that a youngster with an empty stomach cannot be made to learn. And this is one of the big problems that we must face. As John has said, £30 a week going into a large family. My goodness, it won't keep them in bread and butter. And if a youngster comes out in the morning poorly clad, gets wet on the way down, has to sit in a, in a school, probably with a tummy rumbling, being expected to take in this, digest that. The only thing he's, he would like to digest would be a bit of food. It presents a problem. Brian Doolan, in your work you're very closely in touch with this problem of deprivation. Yeah, and I would, I would agree entirely with um, both sides of the argument. Um, John said, he mentioned the strong correlation between poverty and non-school attendance and all its attendant evils. Incidentally, I wouldn't ask that school attendance be treated in isolation. Uh, Ian mentioned the psychological baffling, and he, he, he said quite rightly that if you were to pump money into certain houses, it would have no effect. Uh, John also mentioned about the £30 a week social service money going in. Well, what worries me is about the £30 social service money that's going into the home and which is not being spent on the children. The alcoholic is drinking it. I know cases of... Uh, I mentioned a case just last week where there was, as I said, the woman described her amount of money as three blues and three greens, <coughs> £33 a week, and she was getting £10 a week. And she's now out begging I want to know what's to be done with that. What am I supposed to do or what are we supposed to do? Uh, I would also uh, like to mention that um, one of the other reasons is lack of motivation on the part of the parents, that the education which has been held out to them as a means of getting out of the slum, getting a step up in the social ladder, has proved the myth. And they know from their own experience that there's a lot of codswallop by saying, go into school and we're going to achieve all these things. Yeah, I, I think the, the problem of motivation is a big problem but many of these families feel powerless, you see. They, they feel they can't do anything. They're, as a result, their horizons have, have just shrunk. So just survival becomes the goal, really. How to get by for another day, how to get by for exactly. another week. Um, if, if somehow or another it could be got across, that, and if it could become a reality that education was a way of changing society, and if that was a reality, well then... Um, you could perhaps change people's motivation too, but at the moment it isn't. Education prepares people for the status quo, and 
it helps them to conform to the status quo. It doesn't see itself as changing the status quo. And and another point I'd like to make is is to differentiate between truancy or mitching and non-attendance. I think that truancy or mitching can be a very valuable form of education, actually. <laughs> as Robert Louis Stevenson said, he learned more on the mitch than he did at school. <laughs> Brian made that point, too. So I, I, I think we should bear that in mind, that it's really not truancy as such we're talking about. It's the the factors, particularly those in the home and also those in the community around it, which prevent a child developing to their full. From my recent experience of trekking around two different families, it would seem as though services for children and for families are at the moment very, very fragmented. What's your experience of that, Brian? Indeed they are, and it's, it's, it's in the school attendance department, as I say, we find that the non-attendance of school a minor misdemeanor, but what worries us is the, the tremendous problems that we uncover on the investigation of these cases. Uh, for example, uh, ten years ago I met a poor woman, an inarticulate woman herself, a product of an industrial school, who was beaten by a drunken husband every night at half past eleven, raped, call it what you will, and was threatened with mental hospitals and what have you. She lived an appalling life. I've met her again ten years later, and ten children later, in point of fact she's one child now of six months old. He's getting his social services, he's drinking every penny of it, uh, and uh, she herself wants a, a, a separation. She hasn't the faintest idea how to go about it. She's afraid, A, if she uh, gets the separation, she'll lose the house. She's afraid, B, if she gets the separation, he'll come back and he'll beat her. In any case, the case has been plumped neatly into my lap, and it would be the simplest thing in the world for me to look after the school attendance end of it and walk away from it. I can't do that. So it means that I am privately now endeavouring to get a solicitor to solve all these uh, problems with this woman. Where in the name of God do you turn to or who do you turn to to have these problems solved? Well, what agencies should be going out to that woman? What services should be there in the community that aren't there for her to turn to? Well, I don't know, but if you after two hours phoning you know you'll find that uh, there are no agencies and incidentally all the agencies in that area are calling on this particular woman we're all in on it do you follow me what sort of agencies Brian well you have social workers calling on her you have you you, you have incidentally you have the guards calling on the unfortunate woman because certain things have happened in that line as well we're all in on the act but this woman came into me last week uh, with tears in her eyes, I, I'm not being maudlin about it. Is absolutely true, and as I say, the final indignity. She's on the street at the moment begging. But surely it must be somebody's responsibility, say the health board, to ensure the welfare of the children in that home at least. You try and solve it from my seat, and you'll find who's responsible for it. And indeed, I'd like to be told who's responsible for it. I'd like to know because I'd be after them like a shot to get something done. I don't know. Is It is still true, I think, that services for children and families, are still, especially for children, are split between the Department of Health, the Department of Education and, and Justice. Oh, that's perfectly true. It, yeah. Has anything been done to sort of bring these services together for the welfare of the child and of the family? Well, I would imagine that again, to mention it, you know, in inverted commas, the task force are, uh, are uh, endeavouring to do that sort of thing. I think that's one of their main objectives, to have some uh, unified or uniform system. I, I think we're all 
crying out for the day when there would be some sort of integrated approach to childcare. Uh, the only aspect of it I'd like to comment in particular is re related to education. Because even within education, the services are fragmented. Mm -hmm. And not only fragmented, but very often, for example, at, at post-primary level, in active competition with each other. Uh, like, for example, John? Uh, like, for example, the fact uh, that you will find secondary and, and vocational schools almost f fighting over, over pupils and potential pupils like dogs over a bone. You know, some pupils none of them want to have, some pupils all of them want to have. Uh, and, and, and there's very little coordination there. I would like to see, certainly in the education area, some kind of devolution of education authority to a local education authority, uh, within which school welfare officers, whatever, school social workers, whatever you'd like to call them, will find their due place. How does school look through the eyes of the persistent mature? You used to to read a bit, you know, and you used to, master used to say to me, read this and read that, and you used to make a show of in the school. Then I used to never go in then. I used to stay out all the time. Was the minute you went in the morning, you had to do early, up to early dinner hour. Then you get your lunch, then you do English and all. And the master, if he didn't, if he turned around and talked for a minute or something, come up and he'd hit you, he would. And just talking for about a minute. <clears throat> Tell me about the Irish. Tell you about it. What did you feel about Irish? I didn't like it at all. When he says to do Irish for homework, I never used to do it. Used to just do the songs in English. Never did the Irish. Any time I came in, used to hit me. I was not the only Irish. Mark Keegan, you're principal of Queen of Angels National School in Ballyfermot. Do you feel at the moment that the primary school curriculum is geared to cope with the slow learning child? Yes, I do. Uh, not fully, of course, but it's. I think that it's a marvelous improvement on the old type of class system. <clears throat> and, uh, but there's. One very grave obstacle uh, against the implementation of the new curriculum, and that is the adverse te teacher ratio. And uh, the, I have classes now in my school with 45. Now, it's impossible, impossible to carry out the new curriculum with those numbers. The ideal number, to my mind, would be 30. Uh, certainly not more than 35. I feel there is some form of guidance uh, teacher needed at primary level. Um, this person would be somebody who would get to understand the youngster, get to know the parents, get to know the teacher, and correlate and bring together the needs of the three. Another point I would like to make, and again it's a rather radical one, and it is this. I don't think that we are wise in sending youngsters to school before six. Preschooling or playgroups play or something I think is essential. We must bear in mind that some youngsters do not start talking before two and a half to three and yet six months afterwards or maybe 12 months <coughs> after they're expected to go into a school into a classroom situation with 30 or 40 youngsters and move on with them now by virtue of a delayed starting they are behind for the rest of their lives mm -hmm. and they are termed remedial when in actual fact by, by, by a little bit of work which has been done has been proved to be true these youngsters can be brought up to a level and all they need is a little bit of attention and care. I would feel that play school or some other aspect of life prior to this 
movement, movement into primary school. Primary school then over six to seven years and move in at a later age into post-primary. Just on, the, on that point, a well-known GP uh, from the country has recently suggested uh, that the state perhaps should invest more in preschool playgroups uh, and exactly what you suggest, uh, uh, send children into national schools at a later age. Mm. In other words, reinvest some some money or rethink the way we invest money in that way. Uh, Ian Hart, you're a psychologist working with the Economic and Social Research Institute. Have you any comments to make on the primary school curriculum? Well, I'd like to second our last speaker's comments on the importance of the home in this context. There's not a great deal of point in reforming your curriculum in at primary school level unless in some way the school can reach out into the home. Now, how? what is the best way to do that? Well, um, I think more could be done in the training of teachers to sensitise them to the kind of problems that some youngsters have to face at home, problems which affect their progress in school, and um, problems which need an integrated approach on the part of the school and the local health board. In the past... Um, some of our teachers and principals have not been too forthcoming with parents. I know of one school, which which shall be nameless, where six years ago there was a little notice saying no parents beyond this point. Now, I, I, I believe the situation has changed a lot since then, but there is a tradition of the teacher defining his role exclusively in terms of the child, so the relationship is be, between himself and the child. I think our, our thinking will have to progress beyond that point and incorporate the attitudes of the parents and the kind of real problems that youngsters have at home. Brian, in, you are Chief School Attendance Officer for the Dublin area and you made certain recommendations. The, the Association of School Attendance Officers made certain recommendations to the Task Force on Child Care um, as regards a complete change in your role. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you see that school attendance officers could be helpful in providing a link at primary school level between the home and the school? Well, we feel, first of all, our names should be changed for sound uh, social and psychological reasons from the one of, of school attendance office. You know, it, it conjures up this silent snatch at the kid catcher effort anyway, and we think the names should be done away with. And secondly, we feel that the role of this new education welfare officer or education social worker, call him what you will, should be to interpret the needs of the child and the home to the school and the needs of the school to the home. Uh, we feel that a lot of the people we call on this four uh, percent, you know, they don't know what it's all about. You know, they just don't know what the purpose is, and uh, we feel that uh, this is very evident at the transition stage. For example, when children are going from the primary to the post-primary, uh, uh, there's no explanation given to them what it's all about, even why they should go on, and in point of fact, an awful lot of them shouldn't bother going on anyway. Would you accept that uh, school attendance officers, to do that job adequately, might need some social work training? Uh, I don't know about that. Yes, indeed, probably would require some training. But what I'm saying is this, that the education welfare officer, um, he should be there. Uh, Pat Fein remarked that the people, the parents who should go to the parent-teacher meetings don't attend... Now, I feel that an education welfare officer worth his salt should be able to get those parents there. Now, his role should end there, you know. That they, I don't put forward the education welfare officer as a cure-all for all ills or, in point of fact, to know anything about what goes on in the school. 
but he should be able to get the parent there and let the experts uh, take over from there. I feel at this transition stage, the principal teacher of the vocational school, the national schools, the secondary schools, the convent, the whole lot, should meet together with the parents of these children when the children are, are, are transferring over. They should meet over a cup of tea uh, and the whole thing, purpose of the whole, should be explained to them. And I believe also that there should be much more liaison between the vocational and secondary teachers and the national teachers in each particular area. It doesn't exist at the moment. One might ask what earthly point is there trying to stuff geography or history or even Irish into a child who cannot read and write English. Here's what one parent feels about it. I know this 15-year-old girl and she's been in school from the time she started. They've been given uh, presents maybe at Christmas to this 15-year-old girl for being in school every day. But uh, she doesn't know how to read and she doesn't know how to write. And we give her something down to ask her to read, you know, give her something. And she says, I can't understand that. What does that mean? And what's this? And what's that? You'd be surprised to know how even, it might be very small, maybe three words at it. And she wouldn't know how to do it. So I don't know what she gets the present for. Maybe it's for not going, for going to school, but I think it should be for the per person that knows how to read, knows how to write. And I think that's where the presents should come in. Pat, how does this problem appear to you uh, at vocational school level? It is a, it's a shocking problem, I must state this, because uh, Mark states about 2% leave with problems. We, uh, well, I would confine myself to my, my own experience here. I have come across a 30% intake into, into the school with a reading age below seven and a half years. Now, let me put it to you and understand this clearly. The average age coming in would be approximately 13. They're reading at, and possibly with a bit of help now, they're reading at the same age as a seven to a seven and a half year old. Now, <clears throat> they come into a system where they're expected to move on from that point onwards to a stage where they must take a state examination. Now, the problem I found uh, when I started off, first of all, you know, you have problems with truancy in school and everything else. You write to the parents. Lo and behold, I sent out lovely letters, right? No answer back. I found the parents couldn't read. You see, so this the situation is one thing leads on to the other. But in, in, in Ireland today, to have youngsters coming from, and I will not let anybody downgrade a primary school because I think they are doing a magnificent job and I am the product of a primary school myself and I am very proud of it. They are doing a tremendous job but there's something wrong somewhere that into my school I can have 30 out of 100 who will not be able to read other than Bunty and possibly Bunty <coughs> excuse me, with some help. Right Now what do we do about it? Uh, Mark has stated that in his special classes he has 98% attendance. This I would agree because in our remedial classes once we get over the initial stage of the fact that they realise they are different and we get them over the stage and with the help of very good teachers we can have these youngsters demanding these classes. They will be in for these classes but they'll probably miss out on the others. And I think that was mentioned in the programme the other afternoon where one of the parents stated that there's only certain days to miss. Yeah. One of the youngsters stated, I don't go on a Tuesday, I don't go on a Thursday. Analyse it. On those days, he's in the problem situation. 
So, I mean, this is it uh, at the moment, as I see it. The problem of <coughs> literacy, it seems to me, has caused an awful lot of unnecessary bad blood between primary and post-primary schools, especially vocational primary schools. And I'm very glad to see the kind of harmony there is here on the programme about it. Uh, but I'd like to make a very simple suggestion when we're talking about um, literacy. Uh, first of all, that uh, that the main emphasis should be at the primary level. That's where the money is going to be put. put in. It's actually cheaper to solve the problem there. The second point I'd like to make, and that we've, we're talking about literacy in global terms, what we should do now, and it can be done at no expense, using the existing resources of the Department of Education and of the schools themselves, is to identify the children who are at risk at the moment in the primary schools. For example, any eight-year-old who can't read or write. It should be possible very rapidly to identify them, and then it will be the job of politicians, administrators, teachers, whoever, to whip up the necessary public support for a public commitment to solve the problem there. Yeah, I, I would certainly like to support that. Um, as a psychologist, I think it's a shame that, they, that there aren't far more psychologists operating at national school level. Uh, what happens there has a more lasting effect than what happens in secondary school or university or vocational school. And one of the problems that face, that face many deprived youngsters in national school is Irish, and they find trouble with Irish. Um, they, they, they have enough problems already and then they have two languages to cope with English and Irish and they seem to, this seems to generate a particular dislike of Irish now I would like to see the Irish language restored but I think compulsion with those kids is, the very, is a very wrong approach to take it, it produces negative results and the child's only area of freedom is refusal to learn it's like the child who is sulky the one thing that is left to him to be free in is his ability not to be happy mm -hmm. and it's, a, it's a, analogous to this the, the refusal to learn is the child's wish to be free in a sense but in 1972 the school leaving age was raised to 15 mm. now most of the post-primary schools are still geared to a very a very rigid exam system which caters for 10% probably of mm. about of the students I mean Luke Murta who's president of the Association of Vocational School Principals said at a conference in November 76 that the great bulk of students were being harmed by the system. Now, how can the exam structure change to allow more flexibility, to allow the background of the pupils and the, the community in which they live to be taken into account in the curriculum? Well, if I may refer back, mention has been made to the task force. Uh, mention has been made to other surveys and everything else. You know, really in Ireland, we, we, we produce surveys and uh, we, I think the, the way we have of non-solving non a problem is to produce a committee, to produce other committees. And this, I feel, is what's happening in Ireland, you know. We have the intermediate survey. Right, what has happened about This is the, uh, what is known as the ICE report. Right, the ICE yeah. report. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's... It must be five, six years there. Now, what has happened? Now, in the Dublin area and other schools throughout the country, there are efforts being made in curriculum development. And in that area, I must pay compliments. Really outstanding success. You just cannot keep the youngsters away from these classes. Uh, but yet, uh, you take the other end of the scale, where they have to come in and learn Shakespeare, they have to learn Irish, they have to do this, that and the other, they're handed out books, they have to pay £27 in their first year in, in a primary school for books that they may not read even one third of. In a right? post-primary school. In a post-primary school, right. It is, is presenting a shocking problem. We are not educating, and many youngsters are attending for interviews, and I've interviewed a lot in my, as a career guidance officer, uh, get down to 
talking about everyday facts of living. They haven't a clue. How many know exactly what their parents do? They don't know this. So that really, you know, we are producing an end result that is not related to life. Uh, five A's at Leaving Cert will get you into university. But yet, the failure at first arts in university would shock you. So there's something wrong there. If they can have, and these can be, some of them can be scholarship holders, they can go in there, get scholarships, but yet fail. There's something wrong somewhere. I mean, we, uh, I feel, uh, you know, in my setup at the post primary level, the worry is, you know, that you go into a classroom and there are a frustrated teacher and 24, 25 frustrated youngsters. They would like to do this, but there's an examination that must be got, and lo, heaven help the youngster that presents and goes before an interview board or looks for a job that cannot say we have five A's. Do you know what's happening today? You have parents getting sleeping tablets for youngsters to put them asleep after study and getting, sleeping t or getting tablets to wake them up so that they can go to school during the day. This is a fact. I've met it. I, I, think, I, I think that the relevance of education is very important for the whole question of non-attendance and the um, Youth Employment Act, which is going through the Senate actually this week, has a section in it which empowers the Minister to uh, absolve employers from particular re regulations under this Act if they're providing work experience courses for kids who are in school. Already in some schools in Northern Ireland and Derry they have, they have courses where the, the kids are actually there on the factory floor and it's counted as time in school. Uh, this is the kind of thing we should be doing much more of. Brian, have you a final comment to make? Oh, indeed, I'm glad to hear uh, John say that with the Minister for Labour because, indeed, we approached him about that, Mr O'Leary, to have that section put into the Act because of the irrelevancy of, of school for a lot of people. No, what I would say is this, that uh, let's not talk about samples or percentages anymore. Let's go ahead now and count the number of children at the age of eight who cannot read and write or have problems fly the flag of distress immediately and go and do something about it. Perhaps we might come up with the conclusion that non-attendance is much more a symptom of a problem than the problem itself. Where have you been all day, Henry, me son? Where have you been all day, my beloved one? Away on the meadow, away on the meadow. Make my bed, I've a pain in me head, and I want to lie down.